0: All right, open to John 3, everyone. John chapter 3. going to continue our study in the Gospel of John this morning. And as you can see there on the screens beside me, the title of this morning's message is, He is the Christ. I almost entitled the message, You are not the Christ, but He is. I almost just right out of the gate just said, You are not Jesus. And I guess I'm kind of saying that by saying that I almost said that. But if I, let's just go with it. If I say that to you, you're not Jesus, probably your response is, thank you, Captain Obvious. Wow, I didn't know I was going to learn something this morning. So glad I came to church. But it's true, we are not Jesus. Another way to say it, we are not the Christ. Another way to say that, because this is what Christ means, we are not the Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. What we're going to see in John chapter 3 today, in this brief section of Scripture, is we're going to see John the Baptist and how his understanding that he was not the Messiah and his understanding that Jesus alone was the Messiah actually resulted for him, get this, it resulted for him in great joy. And likewise, we're going to learn that Our understanding that we are not the Messiah, even though that sounds so obvious, but we're going to dig into what that means more. But our understanding that we are not the Messiah, but that Jesus alone, Jesus exclusively is the Messiah, can actually result in great joy. And I think I could add to that peace, relief, comfort. That's where we're going this morning in John chapter 3. Read with me the first three verses of our section. Verses 22 through 24. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown Into prison. This kind of sets the context for us a bit. We were looking at the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus for several weeks. Well, now the author of the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, turns his attention back to John the Baptist, the other prominent John, okay? John the Baptist. Turns his attention back to John the Baptist and says, John the Baptist's ministry was going on simultaneously with with Jesus' ministry. And he had baptized Jesus, and then Jesus began preaching and traveling and gathering disciples. And so simultaneously, these two men were ministering. And it says John had not yet been thrown into prison, which is kind of foreshadowing that's coming in the future for John the Baptist. But two things we're going to consider as we look at what's happening here with this setting, two things I want us to consider and observe together. One the sovereignty of God in Christ's exclusive messiahship. Okay, the sovereignty of God in Christ's exclusive messiahship, and two, the joy of man. Or we could say our joy in Christ's exclusive messiahship. So let's begin with this idea: of the sovereignty of God in all of this. So we again we have. John baptizing and ministering, we have Jesus himself baptizing and ministering. And now let's continue reading from verse 25, and we'll just go to verse 27 for now. And here we start to see this idea of the sovereignty of God and what's going on. It says, Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, which is another way of saying teacher, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. Verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Do you see what's happening here? John's followers, understanding the nature of his ministry and the importance of his ministry, they're noticing that Jesus' ministry is starting to grow beyond that of John the Baptist and starting to overshadow that of John the Baptist. And they're a little bit concerned about it. So they say emphatically, hey, everybody's going to him now. In fact, it says, if you look ahead in chapter 4 and verse 1 right there, look what it says. The Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. So that's what was happening. Jesus' ministry was growing and spreading and John's ministry was shrinking. And they are disturbed by that. They were loyal to their teacher. This is kind of human nature. Someone we admire, we look up to. Someone we've learned from. They're loyal to him and so they're concerned about it. Here's the question. Is John concerned about it? Look what he says. We read it, but look again. A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. John understood That this was all part of the plan. That God was the author of the story. And this part, including John's shrinking influence, that too, part of the plan. Jesus, conversely, growing, spreading, gaining more and more followers, all part of the plan. So he says, look, the way things are is the way things God wants them to be. The position that he has is the position God has ordained for him. Interestingly, if you, if you look throughout the Bible and you study this topic, you see over and over in many places in the Old Testament and the New, that God makes it very clear that whatever we have, gifts and abilities, positions in life, all of that is a gift from God. It all comes from him. Later in John's Gospel, we see Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate is is kind of questioning him. And at one point, Pilate says to him, Hey, don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have the ability to free you? And Jesus says, uh, on the contrary, you could have nothing unless it was given to you. The only reason you have any authority over me is because God allowed you to have that authority. God appointed you to that authority. So Jesus himself recognized that in the positioning of every person. In 1 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says, Who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast if you had not received it? In that context, he's talking about people's tendency to gravitate toward one minister over another. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. Remember that debate they were having inside the church there? Because we're just drawn to man. We're drawn to people And what John is acknowledging and what the rest of the the Bible testifies to is that we are in the position we're in by God's divine appointment. And that applies, I believe we can say, universally to every individual. God is sovereign over where everyone ends up. You see, just in my mind, going back to the book of Daniel, you see where he says there that he appoints people in positions of leadership, kings and those in authority. I mean, over all of that, from the highest levels to the lowest levels of people, God is in charge of all that. And John is resting in that reality and even teaches and encourages his disturbed followers with that reality. Hey, this would never happen unless this were God's divine plan. So his way of saying it, a man can receive nothing unless it's been given him from heaven. Later, and you know this, it was read earlier, but later he'll say, He must increase, but I must decrease. And interesting if you look at that, that's in verse thirty. If you were to look at that in the original and you were able to look at the words you, you see this, this word that's translated must there, it's actually the word that means it is necessary for John the Baptist to decrease. It is necessary for Jesus to increase. In God's sovereign and invincible plan, Jesus must shine brighter and brighter and brighter. And and John, in some ways, he is fading. It is necessary for that to happen. Now before we go farther and before we dig into the topic of how this, kind of counterintuitively, can result in joy for us, let's just develop it a little bit more. Most of us have lived enough life to know that, that things at times don't go our way. Most of us have been burned in some situation in which we were trying to maybe help someone, maybe even minister to someone, and it didn't turn out the way we would have wanted it to turn out. That could have been a family member, could be a child, could be, you could be struggling right now with a child or a grandchild. They, you're trying to help. You're trying to help them see their, their, the destruction that they're inviting into their lives, the harm they're causing, uh, the effect they're having on the family, whatever. You're, you're trying to help them see, but it's just not, you're not getting the results that you want could be that you've lived enough life and some of you are in your older years and, and, and you're saying, boy, I thought my life was going to look a certain way professionally in my career and it didn't really turn out that way. Or, or maybe it did, but it wasn't what I expected it would be. Or in, in ministry, in some endeavor in that realm, you thought, well, it's going to be a certain way, and you, had, you looked forward to it being a certain way, and now you're older, and you're like, wow, I've, I've lived it now, and, and it's not what I thought it was going to be. Or or you're just looking at your life, and you're thinking, boy, what's how much is left, and what am I going to accomplish here? And and there's a sense in which passages like this one tell us it is it is by design that all of us are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And naturally speaking, that's not a, a, a welcomed idea. We don't like the idea of, of, of being shrunken down to size or, or sidelined or, to use sports analogies, benched or to re- have to retire or whatever. I mean, we want to be in the game, and, that, and that's good and that's appropriate, but there's also something going on here that has to do with the vertical of this, and it's, it's God... It's God saying, hey, I have, I've got the plan here. I'm the Savior. I'm the Messiah. I know what I'm doing. And it's necessary for you to become small, for you to decrease that he may increase. I, uh, <laughs> I heard years ago, of a young, a young missionary who's eager to get out there, get on the field, and he was talking with a mentor, an older, seasoned elder missionary. And he said to him, It's all, all pious, right? And he said to him, Pray, pray that I will be small, pray that I will be nothing. To which the elder missionary responded, You are nothing, take it by faith. It's so good of God to acquaint us with our Insignificance and smallness in this strange paradoxical way that actually can lead to freedom and peace and joy in our earthly endeavors. Doesn't mean we throw them away, doesn't mean we have no ambition, doesn't mean we don't try to help people, doesn't mean we don't try to minister. Obviously, we do, obviously, we believe in ministering and shepherding in a, in a church context and all these other good things, but, but there's this vertical truth here that we are being invited to rest in which tells us God is God. And as the Stephen Curtis Chapman song goes, God is God and I am not. And that is good news. All right, let's continue. Let's get into a little bit more of this, this consequence or result or benefit of joy. Uh, notice in verse 28, John says, You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who is the bro- has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so this joy of mine has been made full. Now, now notice there in verse 30, Notice the, repeat, the repeated term uh, joy. It's first in rejoices greatly. In my translation it says that because of the bridegroom's voice. And this, there it is again, joy of mine. And he says it's been made full. So do you see the emphatic language there? And he's using the, the illustration or the analogy of the friend of a bridegroom. Like if, you, if you're the best man in a wedding and you're excited for the groom to be finally united with his long-awaited bride. This is the way John thought of Jesus' union with his church. Jesus gathering his people to himself as Jesus ministered and preached the gospel. And the lame and the sick and the broken and the wretched and all the gnarly sinners like us came to him. He welcomed them, he taught them truth, he he showed them to be, he showed himself to be their Messiah, he was preparing them for the cross that would come, that would finally bring about their salvation. He was ministering to them, and John rejoiced in what was going on. And he saw himself as small. And, and I want to just I want to show you this a little bit more. Turn back to chapter one, and let's just notice things that John has said that make it clear that he was aware of his role of his lowly place in this whole thing. Chapter 1, look at verses 6-8. through eight. First of all, this is, this is the author of the gospel talking here, but it makes the point. And then we'll look at John the Baptist himself saying things about it. But look at verses 6-8. through eight. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So it makes it explicitly clear. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Now look what he says. Look down at verse 19 through verse 21. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed. And did not deny, but confessed. I mean, notice the repetition there. He confessed, did not deny, but confessed. I am not the Christ. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. I mean, could he be any more clear? (laughs) They They were inflating, exaggerating the significance of who he was in some way. And he's insisting on the opposite. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Jump down to verse 26. I baptize in water, John says, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. I'm not even worthy to be at this man's feet. He's so much greater than me. He's so far beyond me in importance, in influence, in value, in ability. Verse thirty. Jump down to verse 30, chapter 1. This is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Which is his way of saying, he's he's God. Later he'll say, he's the son of God. I mean, John saw clearly in these moments how small he was and how big Jesus was. And he knew what people needed. He knew, listen, start with this. He knew what he needed was he needed Christ's rescue. And he knew what other people needed was they need Christ's rescue. And he knew what the world needs is the world needs Christ's rescue. And he knew that wasn't of him. And he couldn't do it. And he wasn't worthy. He was simply there to testify. To say, I I can't save you, but I know who can. He was a herald. He was a preacher. And he was liberated to fulfill his role. His lowly role, his decreasing role. A role that um, was important, but ordained by God was limited and temporary. It even alludes to it back in John chapter 3. Turn back to our passage. It alludes to it. We read it earlier where it says he's not yet been thrown in prison. Do you know that not too long after this, John ends up in prison and then not long after that he ends up killed, beheaded by Herod. And there's a place there in Matthew 11 you see where, where John is questioning at that time whether or not Jesus is the Christ and it's Likely because of what he was going through, that wasn't fitting with what he thought it would look like. He's on uh, death row. You talk about your ministry shrinking. Nothing shrinks your ministry faster than dying. So he was struggling. He was human. He was wrestling. In these moments in chapter 3, there's clarity. In Matthew 11, later, there's human, normal, fragile struggle. And he's like, what is going on here? Well, we have all of these indicators given in this story for God to make it really clear that he alone, that Christ alone is the Messiah. He is the Savior. John was not. I am not. You are not. Your favorite preacher is not. Your favorite politician is not. Your your favorite social media influencer is not. There is only one. It is Christ. And and frankly, it's, it's an understatement To an infinite degree, this is an understatement to say, but saving just one person is so far beyond us we don't even understand the complexity and the depths of sin and depravity and brokenness and all that ravages a person, an individual, whether that's me or you or someone you know. We don't even understand all the complexities. God omnisciently sees it all with crystal clarity, knows exactly what people need. He's the Savior. He knows how to provide. He knows how to even help Creatures understand how great he is and help creatures understand their need for forgiveness and actually to treasure and value forgiveness and cleansing and restoration with him. Only he can turn the lights on. We're going to see that in John chapter 6 later where he talks about Jesus says, only those who are drawn by the Father come to me. It's a miracle to even be able to see. So I I think back to um, the Warwick Mall. I haven't been there since we've... Moved here, which I'm glad because I hate going to the mall. But the Warwick Mall used to have the big Atlas guy, the big statue. Is he still there? He's it's not there anymore. Okay, gone. But it used to. You remember it used to be there, right? And the guy's bulging muscles holding up the earth. And it's kind of you know impressive looking thing. Look, the reality is no, no, no one's shoulders, no one's muscles are big enough for the earth. Okay, that's obvious. But even like one. Person. Even one, I mean, I, this is humbling in a counseling role where I find myself meeting with people in my office and, and so often I'm thinking in my mind, Lord, please help. Because I start to, to sense the complexity, the layers of the struggles somebody's happening, happening, having the depths of their pain, their resentment, their anger, the bitterness, the conflict that's going on for years, and I'm like God, I'm just seeing like this much of something you see so clearly, and Lord, you alone, you're the wonderful counselor. Please help. Burden is too great for us to bear. Not meant, not meant to bear it, and we all have. Some of what is called Messiah Complex. We all have some version of that, level of that. Another term is White Knight Syndrome. You may have heard of that one. Or Savior Complex. I found an article. I'm going to read a little excerpt from it. I found an article not long ago of a pastor who who wrote about his, his burnout. He was experiencing pastoral burnout. And he got some counsel and some help. And his counselor uh, talked to him about his Messiah complex. And at first he was very defensive and kind of resentful of that diagnosis. But he, he found it to be ultimately extremely helpful. And so he writes this article about his discoveries about his own Messiah complex. And I'm going to read to you some of the symptoms or signs of a Messiah complex that he mentions. And just see if any of these touch down with your life in any way. I know some people are more obvious fixers and whatnot than others, and that's kind of what the Messiah complex has to do with. Um, But I believe these are applicable to all of us in some ways. Let's just be human together with a level field here, all right? And just hear, hear some of these signs of a Messiah complex and then a little bit more good news to relieve us. Number one sign is you feel the need to jump in to fix whatever difficulties a person is going through. Now, he's not meaning to say that you should just be insensitive and not care. And and he's not meaning to suggest that we shouldn't help people. We absolutely should and of course we shouldn't. And part of loving and serving people is trying to help them. But he's just saying at some deep level when there's like this frustration and angst or anger or irritation or whatever with people in a situation like that, like look for these symptoms of a, you may have an inflated view of your own influence or importance and Again, to reiterate, God is here this morning to lovingly divest you of that. Okay, number two, you feel like you know what's best for others even more than they do for themselves. Number three, you feel that it's your responsibility to keep your friends or loved ones on the right track. Number four, you trust yourself more than any trained professional or expert to help address other people's problems. Again, there's a footnote here. Some of these are times when professionals might not be seeing things clearly. But just generally speaking, things to consider. Number five, you find yourself doubting the credibility and efficacy of professionals. Number six, you start paying another's financial costs, which can be helpful, but there's a big difference between helping out in hard times and becoming a go-to source of funding for someone else because of what that does for you in this sort of codependent relationship. Number seven, you're certain that without you, your friends or loved ones would be toast. Who hasn't thought that at some point? Or maybe they're already toast and you just feel like it's your job to tell them they're toast. You expend so much energy trying to fix others that you burn yourself out. That's number eight. Say that one again. You expend so much energy trying to fix others that you burn yourself out. Number nine, you feel that's your responsibility to change people. Number ten, and some of these overlap, you think you're the only one who can help. And finally, number eleven, you believe someone out there is capable of single-handedly making everything better and that person happens to be you. Okay, so some humor sprinkled in there. Some of them maybe you can't relate to or identify with. But I would guess that some of them you can identify with. And say, oh yeah. Uh, Sometimes you're tempted to feel, I'm going to add to the list, this is one that I like a lot. You ever tempted to feel like, or maybe even say, "I I just care too much. That's my problem. No raised hands or anything like that. No admissions this morning. But let's just, I mean, you ever thought that, felt that? Maybe you've said that, I just care too much. Okay, so reality check for just a moment. Try to deliver this softly. No, you don't. (laughs) No human fallen creature cares too much. If you're angry and irritated and stressed out because of someone else's struggle or difficulty, that's not because you care too much. It's probably because you think too much of yourself and too little of God. And somewhere, somehow, perhaps you have, we have, include myself in this, we have overlooked the sole, exclusive messiahship of Jesus. And God is here this morning to lovingly confront, address, and even invite you To a different perspective. To be able to say with with John, I must decrease. It's okay. I don't have to be on the front lines. I don't have to be the one to make the change or see the change even. I mean, so many things that happened throughout the Bible, these people that God was working their lives and they played a prominent role, but they didn't even see the fruition of what they promised. I mean, from Abraham forward, right? But that doesn't mean the story wasn't going along just as planned. God was doing his thing. This is, it's amazing to me, this is what's awesome about Scripture, is this passage we've been looking at this morning addresses like the most grandiose narrative. I mean, literally the narrative that makes sense of everything, that gives meaning to the whole universe from the beginning of time till now. It's on this enormous high, high level, transcendent level, and it's super significant, to put it mildly, in all those cosmic ways, and it touches down right in my very life and yours. Because John invites us to say with him, I'm not the Savior. But Christ is. And he's my hope. And he's faithful. And he's reliable. And he knows all. And he genuinely cares and loves with absolute purity. No ego sprinkled in like we tend to do. Just complete and absolute pure Love, And his testimony is here to say he, is, he has come for you thousands of years ago. He lived his life. He ministered. He died on the cross to pay to say it is finished. Your sin is covered. You are fully forgiven and free. He has accomplished it. And he's communicating that same truth to us regularly through the gospel, through our times together, through messages like this, and even to these levels, shining his light to these deep little dark corners of our souls where we just sort of hold on to these things like our little Messiah complex. And he says, hey, what's that about? Why so stressed? Why so preoccupied with that other person and their difficulty in a, in a sort of narcissistic way? <laughs> Why is it? Why, I mean, I've talked to people who just cannot believe that other people haven't taken their advice. And look what the mess they made because they haven't taken their advice. And like, I get it. I'm a parent. Believe me. I get it. Happens like every day. <laughs> Sorry, a little venting there. I get it. <laughs> All that to say, I get it. All right. But it's like, why? Why so bothered? I've had, I've had teenagers in my counseling office at times... Say to me, hey, you know, yeah, I believe my parents care about me, blah, blah, blah. But I, you know what, man? I, I think they honestly just want me to be this way because that's what they want. Because that would make their life easier. That would make their life better. And it's like, uh, well, yeah, I, I can understand that. I mean, all these little ways that are... Our human fallen nature just weaves itself around, even our efforts sometimes to help people, to minister, to do whatever. So so I just think this passage invites us to be aware of it, and God is lovingly addressing it and inviting us to see the glory, the exclusive glory of Jesus and to rest in him and to delight in him and to, to magnify him and to testify of him. I can't save you, but I know someone who can. And he's already done everything necessary for it to happen. So last thing, I'm going to read this little excerpt from the same article. After he gives the list, he says, I have good news for you. God never intended for you and me to act like everyone else's Messiah. Jesus came to save us from sin and give us eternal life in him. In heaven, we'll be free from sorrow, sickness, pain, and all the problems we face in this world. But here on earth, we'll experience them all. And that's life. You and I shouldn't feel responsible for saving others. We simply can't, but he can. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for our time in John chapter 3 this morning. Lord, I confess to you that so often I find myself trying to be even my own savior. Thinking that somehow if I can just manage my life enough or move things around or move people around or get certain things in order... That somehow I'll be able to give myself joy through what I accomplish, through the changes I make. It can be the same in relationships with other people. And you know that that's, that's our nature. You're so merciful, God. to Look upon us in our pride, in our inflated sense of our own importance, our inflated sense of our own influence to look upon us as we're burdened and frustrated and sometimes filled with resentment and the opposite of joy, and you have mercy on us. And Christ came, this rescue mission, to save us. And in this moment of clarity, God, we, we want to acknowledge and celebrate and, and we want to worship you for what you've done and opening our eyes to your Greatness. Thank you for your amazing love. Thank you for everything that you accomplished through Christ. Thank you for his tenderness, his wisdom, his kindness. Thank you for the covering that Christ provides. We look upon him on the cross and we see what we deserve to be cursed, to be treated according to how we've treated you, and yet you say that has happened for us in our place, that we might know fully belonging to you, acceptance with you, that we are children, that we're loved and that you're taking care of us and that you are not, you are not a negligent father. You are not a derelict savior, but you are sovereignly and omnipotently competent And everything that you've determined to do in your redemptive plan, you will do. And we get to be a part of it, God. And we are blown away that that's even the case. Because like John the Baptist, we could say we're not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandal. So thank you so much for this crystal clear reminder this morning. I pray for everyone here. Lord, if there's someone who, who is just struggling here this morning because of difficulties in life or... In their own lives or the lives of kids, grandkids, neighbors, co-workers. Uh, I know, Lord, we read the news and we're, we're, we're burdened and oppressed by all the negativity. And we see the brokenness and the hatefulness of our world. And we just can't handle it. But you can. And you sent your son to tell us what love is. And to show us what love is. And to sacrifice and to say, come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God, please give us rest in Christ, in his name. Amen.